hey, we've been in the book of Acts, and now you're like, Doug, we're only in chapter, finished chapter 3, and it seems like forever. Well, that's just because there's so much rich, good stuff in the book of Acts, and today we're going to be in chapter 4, but up to this point, we've seen a lot of things in the book of Acts. We saw how after the resurrection of Jesus, how this movement we call Christianity began. We saw how this movement really began to explode, and then we saw how this movement also, even though it's big and it's large and it's huge, how there's still there's this family intimacy. And then last week we saw how Peter and John, the leaders of this movement, on their way to the temple in, mass, in the middle of this mass movement, paused and noticed a guy, a guy that was crippled. And I thought it was amazing for us to be reminded that even as God moves and we grow and see amazing things happen as the Bluff Church, may we always remember that ministry is about people. May we never forget people because people matter. That's why we do what we do is because the lives of people. And it was a great reminder for us today. And as we kind of continue on, I, I want to kind of take you back to a verse. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this. Jesus is speaking before he ascends after the resurrection. Here's what he says. He says, and when you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to leave you and I'm going to leave you with my Holy Spirit. And he's going to come on you and he's going to live in you and he's going to be a part of you. And I'm doing that not just to secure your salvation, which the Holy Spirit is security of our salvation. The Bible says that he's a deposit, a guarantee for one day what will come, Right. But he says, I'm going to leave him to be with you, to empower you, to be my witnesses. Now, the reason I want to go back to that verse is because of this. We may talk a lot of different things in the book of Acts. I may point you a lot of different directions. But at the end of the day, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is the verse for all of Acts. Everything hinges on that. Everything we've talked about up to this point hinges on Jesus saying, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, he's going to indwell in you, and he's going to empower you to be my witnesses. So everything we read in Acts, here's typically what we see. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they did what? They did something. Why? Because he was empowering them to be his witnesses. And I'm saying that because that is the theme for our lives. This one verse, if you're, like, if you're sitting there today going, you know, Doug, I'm just not sure what God wants for me, where my place is, how I fit into things. Listen to me, it's very simple. Acts 1.8, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And he doesn't live inside of you just to make you feel good. He lives inside of you to empower you for a purpose. And that purpose is to be his witnesses, to be his mouthpiece, to be Jesus to those who don't know Christ. That is your purpose. Now, the reason I want to point us back to that is this. is because I believe there's probably a lot of you in the room today that said, Doug, I'm working hard to be his witness. I'm working hard to love him and to live for him and to really let my light shine before man. And many of you are doing that. And here's what you found out. That living for Jesus and loving Jesus is sometimes really, really hard. Isn't it? Sometimes living for self and living for my desires and loving the world is much easier than loving and living for Jesus. And there's many of you in the room today that you say, Doug, I really want to be his witness. I know that his Holy Spirit is in me, and I really want to be what he wants me to be. I'm working at it. But it's hard. Can you amen that? Because you know what I'm talking about. Some of you say, Doug, well, it's not just hard, but because I'm trying to be his witnesses, here's what I'm finding out. I'm losing relationships. 
right? Because I'm choosing to let the Bible be the mouthpiece for my convictions and, and the confidence that I have. And people that even that are friends with that maybe don't know Christ or that do know Christ that aren't buying into the level I'm trying to buy in, they find themselves separating away from me because the convictions that I have based on this is not going with the way they want to live their life. And many of you in the room have experienced, when you really get serious about living for Christ, sometimes people seem to leave you alone, walk away from you. And then we have that temptation of, well, maybe I need to tweak some things because I know they love Jesus. Listen to me. Elijah, this man of God in the Old Testament, did this amazing miracle, and then he went in the head of the cave because he was depressed, and he felt all alone. Can I just say this? And this is not encouraging, but I'm going to say it anyway. Sometimes following Jesus, you will feel all alone. But like we sang just a while ago, our confidence is in that he never leaves me. That he's always with me. That he's never let me fall. That he's with me. So as we seek to live this Christian life and to be his witnesses, we find out it is hard. We find out sometimes we do lose relationships. But another thing we find out is this, is that sometimes we will face opposition. Sometimes we will face people that will oppose us. That may be from a spouse. That could be from a relative, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a boss. And ultimately, we all know that opposition to Christians comes from the devil, right? And we face opposition. Now, here's why I kind of want your mind to go with me this morning. Sometimes me, now I don't know about you because you all are probably way more spiritual than I am, but sometimes for me, when it gets tough, and I feel like maybe I feel alienated because of some convictions and stances that I believe the Bible is taking, and sometimes when I feel like I'm facing opposition, I just like to have a pity party. I do. I like to get in the corner and just go, oh, God, why me? Woe is me. God, why not somebody else? God, I'm trying to live for you. Anybody can resonate with that? I mean, I'm just sitting in the corner like a dog, licking my wounds, right? Just licking my wounds, just over here. But here's the reminder. Whether you're facing opposition, losing friendships, or it's just hard, it does not neglect and negate the fact that we are still called to be his witnesses. We are still called because the Holy Spirit lives in us. No matter what we're going through, no matter what we're experiencing, we are still called to be his witnesses. No matter what. Does that mean I don't get an opportunity to go over in the corner and just have a pity party? Yes, that's what that means. Why? Because there's people who need to see and hear the name of Jesus and what he can do for them more than you need to sit in a corner and lick your wounds. Now, here's why this is so important for us today. In Acts chapter 4, for the very first time, this movement that has begun, we saw in Acts 1, faces opposition. And what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at how this opposition kind of creeps its little head up. And I want us to look at how Peter and John respond to this opposition And maybe somewhere today we will find ourselves in this story. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and this is going to set the background for where we're headed this morning. Acts 1, chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking, now let me remind you real quickly, Acts 3, Peter and John are going to the temple. They see this lame guy. He's there, and he's crippled by the beautiful gate, and, he, and Peter and John noticed him. Remember, that was, that was a beautiful passage where they said they directed their gaze toward him, and they called on the name of Jesus, and this man was immediately healed. 
Now, after that, if you read the rest of chapter 3, here's what happened. People were so amazed at this miracle that they didn't want to leave Peter and John's side. They kept asking questions. What's going on? How did this happen? How could this be? And so Peter does what all of us should do. He said, this is a moment. A moment that I have to tell people about the most valuable person they will ever hear. And Peter begins to preach about Jesus. And begins to talk about the love of Christ. And that Jesus is the one that had done this miracle. And so in chapter 4, Peter's still talking, like most preachers. He's still going on, right? And it says this, and as they were still speaking to the people, the priest, underline that, and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, which were the, the political side of the religion of Judaism, came upon them. And they were greatly what? What does that word say? Annoyed. What, is, what does annoyed mean? This, what do you mean by annoyed? Somebody tell me. Aggravated, upset, agitated. Literally, a translation is disgusted with. Annoyed. Disgusted with. Now, now, I want you to follow this for a minute. The chief priest, the temple captain, and the political side of Judaism known as the Sadducees hear this Peter and John talking about Jesus and what is their response? They're greatly disgusted. Think about it. The religious leaders of the day who held the Old Testament Torah or the Old Testament scriptures and would teach the scriptures in the temple every day and talk about a Messiah that was going to come, that was going to change the world, that all of Israel was going to be redeemed. And here's Peter and John talking about that Messiah and the chief religious leaders are in the temple and they are greatly disgusted because they missed it. Right? Now keep reading. Here's what it says. And they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so here's what they did. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000 people. So that's kind of the background. So Peter and John have preached this message. They're almost done. The religious leader shows up, and they're greatly disgusted and annoyed that they're talking about this Jesus of Nazareth and how he raised from the dead. So we've got to do something, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to arrest them, and we're going to put them in prison, and we're going to deal with them tomorrow. Now, I find it really interesting that Luke adds almost a parenthesis and he says, but many of those who heard believed, and now the number's 5,000. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, and by the way, they're arrested, but people still believed in Jesus. And now we went from 3,000 to 5,000 people. In case you were curious, they tried to oppose them, but what happened? God just worked through opposition. Right? Now, here's when the story gets really interesting. Because in verse 5 through 7, we see the first way that these chief priests and these religious leaders try to oppose Peter and John. It says this in verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John the Alexander, and all who are the high priestly family. Now, listen, okay? 
This is the who's who of Judaism right here. I mean, this is not like, hey, call the principal in. This is, hey, this is school board. This is principals. This is uh, administration. This possibly is the mayor. This may be the congressman for our state. I mean, anybody who has any weight, they're going to be in this meeting because this is just greatly disgusting us. So I want you to understand that this opposition wasn't them out on the street and some guys came up and go, hey, stop doing that. They've arrested Peter and John, and they've put them in a place where now the who's who of all of Judaism, all of the Jewish faith, are there, and they're about to hold them on trial for what they've done. It says this in verse 7, or verse 7. And when they had set in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? So they have one question for these guys. One question. Okay, guys, you've been preaching. You've been doing all this stuff. I have a question for you. All of us religious leaders, we're here. We're pompous. We're probably holding our robes, and we're just showing a lot of arrogance, and I got one question for you. On whose authority are you doing what you're doing? Whose authority? Who gave you the right to do what you're doing? It's at this place that this first opposition creeps its head. They are causing them to question their credibility, and their confidence. See, this question, now, it's interesting that this question is the same question that they asked Jesus when Jesus did his miracles. Do you remember that? They came to Jesus and they said, hey, on what authority are you doing this? Beelzebub, the devil? Think about that. The religious leaders looked at Jesus and go, the reason you can heal people is because there's a devil inside of you. How offensive would that be if you're the son of God and you've been called the devil? Right? And so they come to these Peter and John guys, and they ask the same question. Under whose authority are you doing this? Now, they're, they're not going to say you're the devil. The text, plays, the text will play that out. But what they are trying to do is create a question of doubt. They're trying to plant a seed of doubt in Peter and in John's heart. They're trying to create doubt about themselves, and they're trying to create doubt about this Jesus character. Now, give me some liberties here. I want to tell you how I, I kind of feel like this conversation went, based on the text. Here's probably how this conversation went. Hey, Peter and John, you're in front of all the religious people here. Let's just be honest here. There's nothing special about you two. Peter, you were a fisherman. You weren't even a good Jew. You had to do your dad's vocation because you weren't smart enough to make it up through the Jewish culture. You couldn't do that. So you're just, you're just a, a used-to-be fisherman, Peter. And John... Come on. You're always around, hanging out. I mean, we never see you doing anything, John. You guys, there's nothing special about you. You are nobodies. And this Jesus you talked about, he's dead. He's gone. Come on, guys. Tell us the truth. Under really what authority are you doing what you're doing? Now, can you see when you see the text through that lens? They were just trying to create doubt. They were trying to oppose them with getting them to have a little bit of doubt in their, in, their, in their own abilities and what God can do through them and what Jesus wanted to do through them. But they also want them to doubt who Jesus is and their confidence in him. And I just want you to hear me this morning. I think one of the ways the devil opposes us is by trying to create doubt in our heart. He wants to create doubt 
about what we think of ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that you should look at your abilities and go, oh, look at me, am I not amazing at this? That's not what I'm talking about. But I think the devil wants to create doubt that God really wants to use us. You hear it every week that you're here, that the Holy Spirit's in you if you're a Christian, and, and God wants to use you. You have a plan and a purpose for you. And most of us spend our life trying to shirk that responsibility, but at the end of the day, that's what God has for you. And I really think one of the ways the devil opposes us, like these men opposed Peter and John, is by trying to create doubt in our hearts. Doubt about ourselves. See, here's what the devil wants to do. He wants some of you this morning to believe that you are unusable by God. That your past is so wretched, it's so pitiful, it's so pathetic. How in the world would God use somebody like you? Right? The devil wants to create doubt in your heart and make some of you believe that you're just damaged goods. That you've been through so much stuff, you've had so much sin in your life, that at the end of the day, there's no way God would use you. The devil wants to create doubt in your heart to make you feel like you are worthless, that you don't know enough, you don't believe enough, you don't have enough faith. I mean, he's doing all he can to create doubt in your heart and in my heart that we're not really somebody that God would love to use. And can I tell you something else? He's also trying to create doubt, not just about ourselves, but he wants to create doubt in our heart about our confidence in Jesus. If you really think about it, and just follow a trail with me for a minute. If you really think about it, isn't that the first thing the devil did to Eve way back in the garden? Isn't that what he did? He tried to create doubt in her heart. Remember the serpent, which was the devil, came up to Eve, and they had this conversation, and, and Eve said, hey, look, we can eat any tree in the garden, but there's one tree that's forbidden, and we can't eat that. And remember what the devil said to Eve? Come on, Eve, surely God didn't say you couldn't do that, right? What was the devil trying to do? Create doubt. Why? Because he's the king of twisting the truth. He's the king of that. He's the prince of the power of the air who's really good at twisting truth. And I just want you to hear me this morning. I want you to hear my heart. He's going to do all that he can to get us to doubt what God wants to do through us and doubt our confidence in who Jesus is. Now, I want you to notice uh, Peter and uh, John's response. I love this. Verse 8 through 12. It says this. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people, and those, come on, in this moment, Peter's like, this is my moment, this is my moment, and filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm sure he probably, this is Doug's translation, he probably pointed his finger, right, and he starts calling them out, notice what he says, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all of Israel, it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and oh, by the way, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, but by him this man is standing before you, and he's well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, and the builders which have become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name between given among men by which one can be saved. <laughs> now, Peter, think about this. You're in the middle of Peter, tone it down a bit, right? You're in the middle of all these religious people. 
Just go Jesus and walk off the stage. I mean, just give them what they need to know. But Peter doesn't do that. They're trying to cause him to doubt his confidence in God and his confidence in Jesus. And Peter goes, I'm going to show you my confidence. All of you sitting here today, just know this. This man was crippled and now he's healed. And it was in the power of Jesus' name. Jesus of Nazareth, by the way, the one you put on the cross. The one you crucified. He's the one who healed him. And oh, by the way, let me tell you one more thing. That there's only one name under heaven and earth by which anybody can be saved. And it's not the law, and it's not following your teachings. It's proclaiming and putting faith in the name of Jesus alone. Peter showed out, didn't he? I mean, come on. When you read that, Peter, I mean, Peter said, this is who my Jesus is. Now, why did Peter do that? Because Peter's confidence wasn't in his own abilities. Peter's confidence was in Jesus and what Jesus had done. Please hear me. It's too often when we face opposition, we start scrambling because we put our confidence in our ability to deal with the opposition. If we really want to face opposition and succeed, we have to put our faith in Jesus and what he's done. Now look how the people responded to Peter. Because if you're the religious leaders, are you a little bit ticked off at the moment? Are you a little bit upset? You've just been called out. Now look how they respond here in verse, uh, uh, verse uh, 13 through 14. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with who? Jesus. These religious leaders who are trying to oppose them, after Peter showed this great courage, they backed away and go, you know what? This guy does have confidence. This guy's bold. Probably too bold, but he's bold. He's uneducated. He's a common man. But it's obvious that he's been with Jesus. And man, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit just grabbed my heart in that moment when I was studying this a few weeks back and asked me to ask myself this question. Can people say that about me? And I can tell that Doug has been with Jesus. I can tell that his words are not his own words. His actions are not his own actions. I can tell that by his behavior and by his attitude and by his passion to love people and to live for the Lord, he has been meeting with Jesus. And I can tell that about him. Can people say that about us? That's where it gets tough, isn't it? Well, Doug, you know, i got to be the boss at work. <laughs> yeah, you do. But don't you want kind of be the boss that has met with Jesus and shows people grace and mercy? Right? And I just thought, can people say that about us? It's a question to think about. Then the second opposition we have here, and I love this, second opposition that they face is in verse 15. It says this, But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred. So they've kicked Peter and John out. They're talking, and here's what they're saying. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in his name. So they called them, and they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of of Jesus. Isn't it funny that even as they met, they wouldn't say his name Jesus? We're going to tell him not to speak in his name, right? Isn't that crazy? So these religious leaders try to oppose him. You know how the, the first opposition didn't work to create doubt. 
Now they're just going to be hardcore and go, look, you just can't speak his name anymore. I mean, what you did, it's evident. We can't deny this guy that we've seen over and over again was crippled at the temple gate, but now he's healed. We can't deny that, but here's what we can do. Just keep your mouth shut. Just keep your mouth shut. Say no more about this Jesus and we'll be good. Now, if I'm Peter and I've just called everybody out, I'll be like, all right, I'll talk to you later and I'm leaving. But Peter doesn't do that. Peter takes this moment and look what Peter says in verse 19 and 20. But Peter and John, they answer, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you Rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot help but to speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. Peter's like, listen, you can try to shut us up, but we can't quit talking about this Jesus. We can't quit talking about him. Why? Because he's the one that's come. He's the one that called me out of the boat when I was fishing and said, Peter, would you come follow me? He's the one that has raised the dead back to life. He's the one that made the blind to see. He's the one that has saved me. He's the one that has changed me. He's the one that's given me eternal life. He's the one that's given me purpose and a passion for my life. I can't help but to talk about this Jesus. So you can't shut me up because it's part of who I am. Can we say that? Are we so in tune with what Jesus has done for us, how much he means to us, that we can't help but to talk about Jesus? We can't help but to bring him up in conversations. We can't help to let people know that we're desperately in love with the only one that could save us. And so they try to shut Peter up. And listen to me, that's one way the devil tries to oppose us. He wants to shut us up and shut us down. The devil will attack our knowledge, and he will attack our presentation. He will tell you and get you to believe the lie that you don't know enough, that you don't know your Bible enough, that you're not understanding Jesus enough, and by all means, you have no communication skills, and so you're probably not the one that should ever share because you're just not good enough. He wants to shut you down and shut you up. But I want to challenge you to be like Peter and say, because of what Jesus has done for me, I can't but help talk about Jesus. I can't shut up. He's part of who I am. And what he's done for me has changed me so much that I'm going to tell his story. And you can do with me whatever you want to do. Now, if I'm John, I might be backing away from Peter just a little bit, going, okay, we're in this together, but this guy's crazy. I mean, he's called you out, and now he's told you he's going to obey God rather than you, and you think you come speaking on God's behalf? There's going to be some tension here. Now, I want you to notice how they responded to Peter once again's boldness. Verse 21 says this. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. What did the religious leaders do with Peter and John? They let them go. They let them go. They opposed them, tried to create doubt. That didn't work. They opposed them again and said, I want you to keep your mouth shut. That didn't work. We're going to let them go. Now, here's the question that has been in my thoughts for the last three weeks. Why did they let them go? Here's why, and I want you to hear me. Because what was unbelievable was that here's a guy that was crippled from 40 years of age or more and that this guy could be healed. That was unbelievable. But what was undeniable, he was. 
What was undeniable? That these guys had boldness. What was undeniable is that they had confidence in Jesus. What was undeniable is that they were longing to share about this person of Jesus of Nazareth and what he could do for them and how he could save them. That's what was undeniable. So in this moment, what was unbelievable was trumped by what was undeniable. Does that make sense? And because these guys, listen to me, because these guys had been with Jesus, because these guys had confidence in Jesus, and because these guys were faithful to share Jesus, they were able to face opposition. And the same thing's true with us. And if we will spend time with Jesus, and we will put our confidence in Jesus, and we'll be faithful to share Jesus, when opposition comes, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll be able to face it. Three lessons I want you to write down. Three lessons that I think we can learn from the text. Number one, the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to face that opposition. You, if you're a believer, you will face opposition. You will. You will face it. Well, Doug, I don't know. I've been a Christian for 25 years. I've never faced opposition. Well, it's probably because you're not living it. Right? You read the book of Philippians, what you find out is if you're living for Christ, you're going to face opposition. It's going to happen. You cannot say that you're a follower of Jesus and being his witness and not face opposition. You don't see that in Scripture anywhere. See, what I read is people that face opposition were those that loved Jesus. Can I take it a step further? Many of those 10 or 12 disciples died a martyr's death, according to church history. John died on the island of Patmos, boiled to death. That's fun, isn't it? Are you getting the point? You will face opposition. And here's the great news. You can't do it on your own. You can't face it on your own. But the power of the Holy Spirit will enable us to face that opposition. He will give us the wisdom and the knowledge that we need to face the opposition in front of us. Second lesson I think we learn is this, is that people notice if we've been with Jesus. People notice. People, listen to me, people are watching you. Whether you believe or not, and some of you think, man, I'm so insignificant, nobody's watching me. You're wrong. And people know when you've been with Jesus. And some of you are business people that, that maybe you're a boss or you're over somebody, you're making big decisions, and you're faced with tough decisions you have to make. Even in the hard times, they can still know that you've been with Jesus because of your attitudes and your actions. Third lesson I think we learned from the text is this, is that true witnesses of Jesus refuse to be silent true followers of jesus refuse to be shut up to be shut down and i'm just telling you some of us in the room if we were really going to be honest and i don't want you to raise hands or make eye contact with anybody that you know fits this criteria but here's the thing many of us in the room today are struggling being vocal in our faith and we're struggling being vocal about jesus because we don't think we know enough we don't think we're educated enough listen they were uneducated they only spoke from experience Jesus saved me. He changed me. I don't get all the theology of it, but I know that he did. That's what we have to share. That's what it means to be his witnesses. You no longer can let yourself off the hook going, I just don't know enough. It doesn't matter what you know. It matters what you've experienced. Knowledge will come, but it's love that edifies, Paul says. And true witnesses, true followers of Jesus, refuse to stay silent. 
So if you're a follower of Jesus today, my prayer and my challenge to you is that you would keep your confidence in Christ. That you would say today, Lord, I know that I'm facing opposition. I know that I'm struggling, but I'm going to continue to look to you. I know that, as we sang earlier, you are in control. You've got this. There used to be a song many, many years ago sang by B.B. Winan. She had a brother, C.C. Winan. I don't know how parents got that figured out. But anyway, and, and the song said this, when you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. And maybe you can't see God moving today. And you can't see what Jesus is doing in your life. I'm just asking you to trust him. Put your confidence in him, not in your own abilities. And the second thing I pray for us is this, that we would leave here today with a, with a renewed commitment to not be silent. To not be quiet. To not be shut down and shut up. But to share the love of Christ with everybody that we see. So they may look at us and go, there's something different about them. They've been with Jesus. That's what God wants for us. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Everybody stand with me. Everybody stand. We're going to pray. Father in heaven, I love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for this text. And God, there's just so much in it that it just this kind of radically just, just wrecking my heart. I look at Peter and I look at John and the conclusion they come to is that these guys are bold and they're courageous and it's evidence that they've been with the Savior of the world. They've met with Jesus. And God, I think sometimes we try to do life apart from you. And I just pray today for those that are followers of Jesus today that we would decide that we want the world to know that we've been with you through our Sunday morning experience for daily Bible study and prayer time, that we have evidence that we have met with you. And God, I thank you for what, at the end there, when the disciples, when Peter and John stood up and said they wouldn't be, be silent, they said they couldn't help but to speak about Jesus. May we be so in love with you that we don't have to choreograph or orchestrate bringing Jesus into our conversation, but he's just part of it. The part of following Jesus and loving Jesus and sharing him is just part of our DNA spiritually. I look at Peter and John and go, God, I want to be like them. I want people to notice that I've been with you. And I want people to know that I'm not going to be silent because, Jesus, you've changed me. And God, I just pray for us as believers in the room today that we would let this convict our spirits but that it would challenge us that we leave today. We're going to commit to spending time with you. And we're going to commit to being a mouthpiece, to being vocal for you. And no longer will we be silent. No longer will we be ashamed of the gospel. But we'll be proud. And we will boast in what Jesus has done and share it with those that we come in contact with. May you challenge us to do that. May you convict us where we struggle and we want to push back on you. But may we leave here today with the resolve to be the kind of witnesses that spend time with you and refuse to be silent. For it's in your precious son's name that we pray. And all God's people said amen. Hey, let this song be the cry of your heart today. Let this lead you down a path of commitment to greater devotion to him. Let's sing together.